AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Mike Hogan has left us for sunny Sweden, where he is presumably, uh, we, we haven't yet decided if there are fjords in Sweden, but he's doing something glamorous and outdoorsy, we hope. There are definitely fjords in Sweden. I just think of them as Norway, but Norway is so close that there have to be fjords. They're the same country. Well, Mike. <laughs> oh, no. Uh-oh. Whoops. <laughs> Apologies to Sweden. Yep. Uh, well, Mike can report back to us when he returns. Uh, but in the meantime, we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about Ocean's 8, the most ambitious crossover event in history, as far as I'm concerned. And then we're going to share a conversation with someone who you've heard from before, Sonia Soraya, our TV critic, who came on to talk about Westworld and The Handmaid's Tale, uh, and then Joe Pompeo from our team on The Hive. Uh, they're going to talk about the Showtime series, The Fourth Estate, which is a kind of insider look at The New York Times which, with lots of media gossip to go along with it. And then we're also going to share Richard's conversation with Claire Danes, who is the star of Homeland and has a movie out this week called A Kid Like Jake. Well, before we get to any of that, though, we wanted to talk briefly about some very award season friendly trailers that dropped this week within an hour of each other, I believe, which just feels like bad planning. There was the Suspiria trailer, uh, the new film from Luca Guadagnino, the director of Call Me By Your Name. Uh, and then about an hour later came the tra- trailer for Widows, which is the new film from Steve McQueen, the director of 12 Years a Slave. Uh, so film Twitter had a really busy morning. Um, I don't know. I feel like Widows is the more fun trailer to talk about. That's the one that really got me most excited. This movie looks amazing, right? It does. Our listeners probably don't care, but I really am curious about the inside baseball behind like who screwed that up with with the trailer drops you know because i <laughs> i think the widows one had been announced like we're gonna release this trailer yeah they on... had like a teaser i think the suspiria did two though i just but like it might have do... been like a standoff and someone yeah. thought someone else would blink and then nobody did i mean they're two very different movies obviously but yeah widows looks incredible i mean this is i think i don't want to speak for you two but like this has been one of the most anticipated movies of the year i think and for me anyway um because the director, the cast, everything about it, the, the writer, it's Gillian Flynn, um, Steve McQueen. Like, it's it just has this really interesting pedigree. Um, no one was really sure if it was going to be, you know, art house Oscar play or, you know, fall kind of dark commercial play. It seems maybe it's a little bit of both. But yeah, based on the two and a half ish minutes that, you know, of, of footage that I've seen and we've all seen if we've watched the trailer, um, I'm 
I'm like more stoked for this than I was, you know, already. Uh, I do have to echo our colleague Cam Collins, who kind of raised his eyebrow at the idea of Steve McQueen, director of Shame and 12 Years a Slave and Hunger, of having fun. Because this movie looks dark and it doesn't look like a like an Ocean's kind of caper, but it doesn't look quite as grim as his previous films. And I'm curious about that tonal shift for him. I think it's, it's a lot of the fun in the trailer is whatever Daniel Kaluuya is doing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> he's playing. I feel like, you know how... Katie has an issue with Caleb Landry Jones. I don't know if we've talked about this on this podcast. <laughs> I think we definitely have. <laughs> Which she does. And I feel like Daniel Kaluuya saw what Caleb Landry Jones did in Get Out. He's like, I can do that, but better. Watch me. <laughs> <laughs> so he's playing this, like, I mean, menacing uh, figure. And every shot of him just delights me uh, in the trailer. So I'm really excited to see what he has to do. Yeah, I guess he and Brian Tyree Henry are like debt collectors or something. Like they show up at the funeral and look like they're trying to collect yeah. on what these husbands owed. Yeah, it seems like it. I also have a hard time thinking of um, necessarily Michelle Rodriguez or Violet Davis having a lot of fun also. They don't strike hmm. me as like super fun havers. Um, but, uh, but Elizabeth Debicki, we know she can have fun. She's so good. But Cynthia right? Revo can have fun if anyone's watched the amazing YouTube video of her singing a song from last five years at Marie's Crisis, which I have watched many, many times. And I have should. because Richard Richard sent it to me, so I definitely watched mm-hmm. it. Um, and Colin Farrell, we know, can like chew up a scene like no one else if he wants to. I so, mean, I, t- you know. I, t- I tweeted you about this, Joanna. Like, I feel yeah. bad that Colin Farrell was the one who got my attention the most in this trailer, but there's such a shot of him like sitting on a boat looking very Wolf of Wall Street dapper, and we've definitely talked about Colin Farrell. Like, last year felt like it was going to be, be be a big year for him. Kind of every year feels like that at this point, but I don't even care how big his part is. I'm just excited to see Colin really have something to, to dive into and work with a director as good as Stephen Queen. Yeah. We should also mention that, you know, speaking of things in the trailer that guiltily caught our attention, Jackie Weaver is in it. Yeah, wearing some sparkles, crazy hair and big, big hair, sparkly jacket. That's exciting. Um, I also we should note that you know former um, P word posse member Lucas Haas is in the film. Brian Tyree Henry, who is in Hotel Artemis, that's coming out this week. Like you know, it's the cast is insane. Oh, Carrie Coon is in it. I think yeah, I, that's ta- right. I mentioned it when she was here talking about something for the podcast. I, I believe we talked about it very briefly, and she said she's only in a couple scenes, but still, like. But we know what Carrie Coon can do with just a few scenes. My favorite, my favorite part of the trailer behind Daniel Kaluuya's eyeballs is um, the Liam Neeson as Ghostwife. I've been I've been studying the Nolan films because I've been on this Westworld uh, beat, and so you know Christopher Nolan, Jonathan Nolan are obsessed with the dead wife trope, which they're not alone in Hollywood because Leonardo DiCaprio has had dead wives in other movies, but like dead wives, its motivations is like whatever. So watching this movie open, and it's not once again not a spoiler because it's very it's called Widows, so you know okay. Um, but the but the trailer opens, and I'm like, yes, Liam Neeson is dead wife. I love it. This is usually a Michelle Williams role or something like that. So um, I was I was really excited to uh, to see that little flip there. Um, okay, so let's talk about Suspiria 2, which, as I said, did get a little bit overshadowed by Widows on Monday morning. But, I mean, there's every reason in the world to be intrigued by this. From Luca Guadagnino, who's working with Dakota Johnson, who was really great in A Bigger Splash with him two years ago. Uh, and then Tilda Swinton appears to be playing both a, uh, a, a character who looks like her and an old man in prosthetics. I thought that was debunked. I think that, was, that was debunked. Was I think it's a different actor. But 
But I think the thing about Suspiria that I'm intrigued by, because coming out in the fall, which we tend to think of the fall as, you know, serious award stuff or dark thrillers or whatever. And this just seems like a nice, fun, lighthearted comedy, you know, just like women at a school together. I just think it's going to be nice, you know, like a sort of another sort of Ocean's 8 kind of romp. And I think that that's that's great. Um, No, it looks terrifying. And I hear it's. I've, I know a couple of people who've seen it, and they say that like there is one scene in particular that is like brutal to watch. Great! I'm still working up the nerve to see Hereditary, and this is <laughs> this is mm-hmm. coming down the pike. Oh, I mean, I like I feel like we've all we've talked about Dakota Johnson. I think maybe especially from a bigger splash and being having a lot more potential maybe than the Fifty Shades franchise allowed for her. I mean, this role doesn't look like it's playing in on like her charm, but it is. Uh, it's a chance for her to do a lot in the role, which is intriguing. Yeah, I, I, I like no one can begrudge, uh, you know, a young actress starting out like Dakota Johnson going for like a big uh, franchise role in in Fifty Shades. But I do think it just sort of put put a pause on what we could see from her. And now that she's out of it, I'm excited to see what she does next. But I, if you haven't seen A Bigger Splash, she is freaking incredible in it and i really loved her in that and seeing her in that i i'm really excited to know what she can do next and to see her with guadagnino again in this trailer i'm just like yeah forget it. i mean like she did her time 50 shades um you know no dirt on that if you enjoy that franchise but like it, i think it was pretty clear actually that those two lead actors like the actors in twilight like at a certain point were like this is not what we want to be doing anymore and you just have to get through the franchise and finish it and now we get to see what a dakota johnson would actually do with like i don't know full control of her you know it's like what kristen stewart did after twilight you're just like yes do that yeah. you know no, so. I, the kristen stewart track feels very available to, to dakota johnson and yeah. Who wouldn't want that track? I think for our purposes, like this movie, I mean, who knows? But like last year, we had a auteuri horror movie in Mother, which, you know, was really not, it was a complete bomb at the box office. It was very, you know, divisive in terms of critical reception. But for a time, you know, from from our distance last year, from June of last year, we were looking at that and it was going to be at Venice and all this. And that seemed like maybe something awardsy. And so I'll be curious to see what Suspiria, kind of where that falls. I mean, it's Amazon Studios, so they've managed good, um, you know, awards campaigns in the past. Um, it's coming out later than Mother. Mother came out in September, right after Toronto. And this is coming out uh, in November. So that's maybe more of a prime slot. But like, obviously, we talked about a couple weeks ago, um, whether A Quiet Place has, uh, you know, Oscar chances, given that Get Out, a horror movie did so well uh, last year. But like, I don't know that Suspiria has the social, social message that Get Out does. But anyway, I'm just like really interested to see where with this new prestige horror movement, you know, where we are with we are with that, like whether Suspiria is maybe the one that will the second one after Get Out to to kind of register in that way. I would expect we'd see both Widows and Suspiria at one of the uh, the early September festivals. I think Twelve Years a Slave premiered at either Telluride or Toronto. It premiered at um, Toronto. And Call Me By Your Name had been at Sundance, but made its way through kind of all the fall festivals as well. So, yeah, I mean, this is kind of the exciting part of the year for us is where we start getting a look at how our falls are going to line up and 
I don't know. It's uh, it makes me ready for some cool weather. Right? Yeah, I know. I'm kind of like, all right, hurry up, summer. Like, let's <laughs> get this over with. I don't need to see Ant Man and the Wasp, like, which I will, <laughs> and I will review fairly and honestly. I'm excited to see Ant Man and the Wasp. Come on, come on, Michelle Pfeiffer. Come on. Oh, true. It'll be fun. Right, okay, so let's talk about uh, Ocean's Eight, which is out this weekend. Richard, I read your review and I saw you already getting some hate for maybe liking it too much, which feels like the world that we live in, where something that stars a lot of women. No one's allowed to like, uh, but I want you to stand up for Ocean's 8. The hate is so frustrating because it's like, it's people with like, not to be a jerk, but like 35 Twitter followers being like, well, obviously, you know, of course it was going to be bad, you know, because it's all whatever. And it's like, I just, it's so predictable. And yeah. no one actually reads the review. Well, I shouldn't say that. But like people on Twitter who are do- responding like that, see a headline and respond to it. But like in the review, I'm like, the problem is far and away not the eight wonderful actresses assembled for this heist. But it- it's more the pr- a problem of direction. It's Gary Ross directing, who is a friend and frequent collaborator of Steven Soderbergh's who, you know, directed the first three Oceans, well, well the Oceans reboot anyway, uh, those films. And um, so, like, you you know, there was hope that because they had a close personal relationship that somehow something Soderbergh-y would be infused into Gary Ross and he would give us, you know, the sort of fourth in this, this film in this world. But the direction is kind of flat and uninteresting and as is the screenplay. Um, so the actresses are doing their best to make it work, but there's only so much they can do. The quote I was hearing from various people who worked on the film were involved in it was just basically Gary Ross is not Steven Soderbergh, which was just an insult because few people are Steven Soderbergh, but it does seem to really make a difference in this. I think it does. Yeah, I agree. When I was, you know, a reaction that I heard from a lot of people was, oh, I really wish Steven Soderbergh had directed this. And watching it, I was like, yeah, there's just a lot of, uh, especially pre-heist stuff. You know, once you're in a heist, a lot of heist movies, like once you're in a heist, I don't know, I get kind of swept up and I'm like here for every single heist I've ever seen. But like in the planning and the getting the team together and all of that, I felt like lacked a lot of the, just the style and the, and the momentum, I would say, of the Soderbergh uh, efforts. Well, I want to hear about the the team that they get together because I feel like that's such a huge selling point of the movie. You know, you're going to tell me, you, so, show me however mediocre reviews are going to be like, well, it's Kate Blanchett and Sandra Bullock leading a heist, like I'm there. So, so how does that that energy among this huge cast work in its favor? Well, it works because the actresses uh, among them, Sarah Paulson, Mindy Kaling, Helena Bonham Carter, Rihanna, uh, you know, are all kind of innately interesting and, and sort of charismatic. And um, the problem with the movie is that they don't give them enough time to kind of just like be together and to chat and to banter and riff and, and kind of, you know, in the way that the original, well, sorry, not the 1960 Frank Sinatra movie, but like the Soderbergh. I feel like we can pretend that the 2001 Ocean's Eleven is the first. So the 2000, in the 2001, the runtime is only five minutes longer than Ocean's Eight. But I just feel like you have so much more time to kind of luxuriate in their dynamic and you get to know each character in some small way throughout the film and and Ocean's 8 just feels rushed in that in that regard and and you know the movie ends and you're like that was really fun but like who was Mindy Kaling's character who was Sarah Paulson's character you don't really get to you don't get the same sense of texture I guess and I don't know what the fix for that is because the movie is you know, paced in a sort of reasonable way, I guess, but something feels off. And it's crazy because it's it's paced in a reasonable way, but it's just paced so oddly. Just the rhythm of it just feels really incorrect to me. And I I, I should say I didn't say 
you know, what Richard said, which is like, I did like it broadly. Um, I love Anne Hathaway in it. I think every single choice she makes is amazing in this movie. Um, also, uh, I, don't, I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion. James Corden is great. And I actually had this like weird twinge of guilt. He doesn't show up until the final act. And I had this twinge of guilt that I was laughing harder at Corden than I did any of the women that came before him. And um, that felt contrary to the spirit of the movie. But I, I don't know. I, I feel like Corden maybe knew a little bit better what movie he was in than maybe some of the other women did. It's possible, but that's just that's just my interpretation. But the pacing just felt so weirdly off, and I completely agree with what Richard said. Like, I have no idea who Mitty Kaling's character is. And not not only is this, like, just five times shorter than the original or the 2001 Oceans, but, like, there's fewer <laughs> members of the team to try to get to know. So, you know, it's... I don't know. I don't know what it is. The thing in your review that shocked me, Richard, was that this film had a sh- had a lower budget than the original Ocean's Eleven, which was made 17 years ago, and had, you know, uh, three more members of the team, and presumably Brad Pitt and George Clooney were getting huge salaries. But that that seems crazy as a way to, to present this movie with women taking over the mantle. Yeah, it's not much lower, but like adjusted for 17 years of inflation, like that's still a lot, that's a lot lower. And I and I and something I also mentioned in the review in in sort of two different ways is that between the the lack of complexity in the sort of heist plot where where things are solved very easily in Ocean's Eight in a way that they maybe weren't in Ocean's Eleven, and that it doesn't feel quite as tailored as as the Soderbergh films, the fact that it's this Ocean's movie, the one starring almost entirely women is the one that should get the sort of short shrift on narrative and on budget. Like, that is not great messaging. It's not as if Sandra Bullock isn't bankable. She for sure is, you know. And, and a lot of other people in the movie, in their own way, like, have, you know, Rihanna's in it, for Christ's sake. Like, 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 this is not something that we should be, or necessarily need to be, like, cautious financially about. And I just, and, and yet the studio is. So um, it's a little bit frustrating. But, Joanna, I do agree with you very much. And I, I want to stress, I did like the movie. It's just, like, I wish it were better. But Anne Hathaway is fantastic in it. She has one scene in particular. I don't know that I could ever really say that I've liked James Corden in anything. I don't like him in this. But I do really like that scene that she has with him where the movie almost takes this kind of interesting new direction it doesn't, but like she introduces kind of a new spirit to the movie. And I, I think she's wonderful. I put her on a supporting actress shortlist right now. Yes. Get that Oscar buzz going. Oh, this is why we're here, isn't go. it? Right? <laughs> it is. Well, it's so good because and, and what's actually kind of fascinating about this movie is like because it, you know, they shot, uh, you know, in our office building <laughs> in New yeah. York. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah. I was like, they and not just like Anna Winter's office, which is in the movie, but like in the cubicles and i was like it's oh so hey weird. it's our cubicles yeah, yeah. So yeah i went to the vogue floor and they, they were shooting i totally forgot about that i mean all i saw was like a bunch of cables laid around but still it was cool i literally elbowed the person i was with and i was like that's our cubicles and i was like that's not cool joanna don't be cooler about this um but uh you know they, they not only shot in our our building shot uh you know a facsimile of the of the met ball and all of that sort of thing but it also does deal a lot with celebrity because Anne Hathaway is playing this, uh, you know, movie star, uh, celebrity and journalism. There's this one part where someone's like, are you, are you a journalist? And all the women are like, God, Oh God, no. Oh God, no. And I was like, Oh yeah, uh, that, that was a weird line. And I was like, no, like we're like, not now guys. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Don't be on the wrong team. 
I feel like we haven't talked about Anne Hathaway much in this podcast because it's been a while since she's been in an Oscary conversation. And I, I mean, I think despite your campaign, Richard, it might be a long shot for her. But are we? I feel like the three of us are all on the Anne Hathaway has gotten a bum rap and deserves uh, better than the public has given her. Well, I mean, I'll confess, like, back in my old, you know, gawker days, I probably was not very kind to her about certain things, just because I recognize so much of myself in her, in that, like, she's such a fucking theater kid, and, like, it's just so, like, palpable. I probably would still be that way if I had chosen to, you know, a very bad decision to to pursue acting, but, um, which was at one point my dream. I mean, she really is great and 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 you know like in her best roles whether it's this or Les Mis or Colossal which I think we did talk about on the podcast a couple of years ago you know she really can command a scene in a, in a real in a way that of that like makes her movie star-ish you know although and and the funny thing about her being a movie star is that like this is kind of a character return like it's it's a, it's a smaller supporting role but she just kind of fills every scene she's in not in a desperate theater kid way but in like a very like commanding confident manner and i i think that she pretty much walks off with the movie absolutely walks off with the movie and also i agree with everything you're saying and also there's the added layer of you know she's spoofing an insecure try hard movie star so like she's spoofing a version of herself which i don't think like she actually is but you know she's just doing something really fun way more fun than julia roberts playing julia roberts like she's just doing something really fun with um you know movie stardom the the media met ball all of these things all of these attitudes and and just like yeah it's um it's every choice she makes had me in stitches i just like every single thing that she does with her face and it's um i know i knew she was funny but like this is a this is sort of like a new level of funny I think from her that I I hadn't really fully recognized and um, it reminded me of just just what she's able to do in this reminded me of my favorite moment from her in the um, in the Nolan Batman films where she's playing she's playing Catwoman she's playing Selena Kyle and she goes from sort of being in a, in a scene, she goes from menacing someone to pretending to be the victim on a dime when the cops come in and she starts screaming and crying. And when you see her do that in, in that Batman film, Dark Knight Rises, uh, I am just shocked and astonished by what Anne Hathaway could do, even though, like, we all know actors act. It's just she does a degree of heightened acting whether for comedic purposes or whatever, that I just, I find really, really impressive. I think she's amazing. And and I, I don't know what this means in terms of like what I want to see more of from her. Um, you know, what, what is she not doing that I would like to see her do more of? But I just, I, I loved her in this so much. Well, you guys have me excited to see it. I, I, I'm curious if we care how it does box office wise. Like I, with the Ghostbusters remake, especially, it felt like the stakes were so high and the vitriol was so intense that it like really needed to succeed. And then it kind of didn't. Uh, this one feels a little less intense. But then again, with the Star Wars fans uh, coming back up to be horrible, like, I don't know, I feel like, should I, how worried should I be if this movie doesn't do well? Well, don't worry. A couple of Jamooks on Twitter have told me that only eight people cared about this movie anyway. So, oh, well. <laughs> word of mouth at least you know from what i've heard here on the mean streets of of the bay area is uh that a lot of people are going to see it i think it'll have a good opening weekend i don't know if it'll have like longevity or the or the absolute muscle of the 
not original Ocean's trilogy. Yeah, I mean, I was in, I was a freshman in college, I think, when that first movie came out, and um, yes, I am that old. Um, I'm, I'm talking about 1960, by the way. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> but I just feel like everyone saw that movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, that movie was everywhere. It was like in everyone's dorm room on VHS afterward, or or DVD, I suppose. And I don't know that I feel, and it's not because it's women. It's just because I just don't know the movie is up to it. I just don't know if I see that kind of phenomenon happening. But I really do hope. I hope it's a huge hit. You know, not just because it's a political moment or whatever, but like also because I want to see Ocean's Nine because I think there is a lot more of with this cast and with these characters to flesh out. And I think that maybe a sequel. Um, maybe Soderbergh could come back and do it. Um, would would be uh, would be that movie. So so we'll see. I I, I hope so. I but uh, it's also you know, Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom is opening in um, the UK and uh, other markets in Europe, I believe, and, and and other parts of the world. This week, it's not open in the United States for two more weeks. So we have this kind of quiet period where Ocean's Eight maybe could take advantage of that because there's not a lo- whole lot else out there for people to see that's new. You know, I mean, obviously, Solo is the biggest box I was hit in history. So, like, there's that. But (laughs) (laughs) whoops. I agree that I saw this film and I was like, oh, I laughed. I had a fun, fine time at the movies. I would love to see another, like, given how kind of muted my response was to it, uh, I'm surprised by how much I really would love to see a sequel. And it's because I do want, like, more for these characters done for these characters. And so like, you know, we haven't talked about Sandra Bullock much yet. Sandra Bullock, it's, it's a really self-assured performance and I really like her in this role. She's not Clooney. She never should be Clooney. She and Clooney have such a weird little uh, intertwining of their careers um, you know, in like um, him appearing in Gravity or her playing a role that was, you know, meant for him uh, in whatever that other movie was where she's a fixer. Um, and so our brightest crisis. So, you know, it's just it's interesting to see her as this like female version of Clooney and, and think about what that means. What does that mean? Um, and I do think that there's there's a moment in the beginning of the film when she gets out of prison i don't think that's a spoiler to say she gets out of prison and what she does after was actually like one of it's it's just crime it's crime is what she does after it's really fun and then the movie sort of like loses its steam a bit and so uh until the heist and but but i want to see sandra bullock do more crimes is what i'm saying so yeah she she really is great and you're right it's an understated kind of restrained performance but like it's a really interesting one and the dynamic that i really want to see explored in hopefully oceans nine is her rapport with Kate blanchett's character lou who is kind of this chrissy hind kind of slinky in a suit kind of character with a with a kind of fringy bob haircut there's like definitely some gay undertones between them in the movie that like the movie does not really explore and I don't know that maybe a sequel would necessarily, but like I want more of whatever that is because it's really interesting and Bullock and Blanchett work really well together. You know, so there's a lot going for the movie. I just wish that it sort of took its time to appreciate all of the stuff it has going for it. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, 
or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so Richard, now we're going to listen to the conversation you had with Claire Danes, who uh, you wanted to talk to her specifically because you think she's been really tremendous on Homeland. But she's also got a movie out this week called A Kid Like Jake. So uh, you guys talked about some combination of those two things, I assume. Yeah, I mean, ostensibly she was, you know, on the on the line to talk about Kid Like Jake, which is a movie that premiered at Sundance uh, back in January and is about some topical stuff. It's based on a play. Uh, it's about some topical stuff in, in terms of um, gender identity and, you know, nonconformity and all that. And um, it's about two parents, Claire, played by Claire Dance and Jim Parsons, whose son is presenting, you know, sort of non-masculine or whatever, but like at a very young age. So it's an interesting little slice of life drama shot in New York and she's wonderful in it. There are a couple really bruising f- argument scenes, not fight scenes in that they're punching each other, but like verbal fights um, that are so well done. And it's a really great performance. And, and something that I asked her in the interview, because I am such a big fan of, of her on Homeland, it's like she hasn't done a lot of films um, while she's been doing that show and kind of talking about why that is and, and what her sort of strategy, if anything, is for, for what projects she picks. So it was a good chat. And I, you know, for me, it was exciting because, you know, I've been a fan of hers for nigh on 25 years almost. Well, let's go ahead and listen to your conversation with Claire Danes. Well, I'm happy to be on the line right now with Claire Danes, who is the star of A Kid Like Jake. Uh, Claire, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I was just telling you before we started recording that uh, the film, I went to the party for the film at Sundance, saw the film at Sundance, where it got a really nice reception. What, what was your experience there? You, you've done that festival before, before I, I assume. Do you know what? I hadn't. That was my that right? wow. my uh, virgin visit as somebody who was who, who actually had a, a a movie personally in the film. I've I've gone as the plus one plus one. Ah um, uh, yes yes. But so yeah, it was it was novel, and I was actually pregnant at the time, and was in that horribly awkward stage of the pregnancy where I'm not allowed to admit it to anyone. So um, the combination of, you know, nausea and fatigue and altitude was a little intense. So uh, I, my 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 perception was was pretty distorted. But all of that aside, it was terrific. It was really exciting to share the movie for the first time with an actual audience and the world in, at large. And uh, you know, it's 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 always 
you know, great thrill and uh, mildly terrifying. Watching it that first time, I, I was I, I wasn't able to see much, you know, because it's, it's such a heightened reality. The premiere here this week in New York, and um, I think I was, I, it was more possible for me to make sense of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sundance is kind of a mad, well, like you said, altitude, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. It also, you know, it's a film about a, you know, whose parents are, are, not, I don't know if concerned is the right word, but but suspect maybe their child is maybe non-gender conforming, uh-huh. um, but he's very young, so we're not, they're not putting labels on it. And, and it, it's arriving at a time, well, at Sundance, you know, there was a lot of talk about gender and politics and all that. And, and, and this movie fills a really interesting spot in that conversation in that it's dealing with a young kid. It's not, you know, a teenager going through this or someone older. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious about what, um, in this current moment or when you, when you signed on, what, what, how did the project come to you and what, what made you want to do it? Well, Jim Parsons, who stars in it with me, who also produced it. So he was the first person to bring it to my attention, but actually an old friend of mine, Jeanette Kahn, was the first person to bring it to his attention. So uh, it felt kind of in the family. And you know, obviously I was, I trusted, I didn't yet know Jim, was a big fan, but didn't know him personally, but but trusted Jeanette's thoroughly. And then when I read it, it was just, you know, immediately clear that this was something that I wanted to be a part of. It's really beautifully written. And, you know, it was not, I didn't have to stretch my imagination too far to be able to, you know, to, to make sense of it being a New York mom of a four-year-old son. And I had just gone through that, that process of in, in, enrolling in schools here. Yeah, it was, it was immediately relatable uh, on a lot of levels, but um, yeah, I just love that, you know, it, it explores these topical concepts of, the gender politics and fluidity and 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 all that, but from a really uh, human, intimate place, and I think explores it in sort of surprising and subtle ways. I do like that there was that that a lot of it was just about suggestion and projection, and that was enough for people to become. <laughs> to kind of spiral <laughs> into yeah. these yeah. psychic frenzies. Yeah, I, I was struck by its subtlety uh, in in that, you know, I know it's based on a play. I'm told in the stage production, you never see the kid. But obviously on film, that would kind of be a little awkward. But, but the way that Jake is sort of employed, I mean, it's... You're right that it, it sort of... It's more suggestion than it is anything else, and then and it's kind of more interior than it becomes a psychological thing yeah. between these two people. And and something about your character that I found really interesting, and this is maybe my own either gender bias coming into play or or the kind of stories I'm used to seeing, mm-hmm. uh, is that you kind of expect your character to be, being the mom to be sort of more sympathetic to yeah. this this stuff. And it, as the as the story progresses, it's actually your character who has kind of the issue with it in a way um how did you guys kind of tease that out when you were filming i mean how do you kind of calibrate that character because something i liked about it is that she's very sympathetic and yet there are times when you want to just say oh my god like you're you're so wrong yeah well i think she just you know when she senses that he's going to be vulnerable she responds in a in a kind of fiercely protective way 
and she um, she just gets very defended and defensive and wants to kind of shield him entirely from from uh, any slings and arrows, you know, that, that might possibly come his way. And I, I think that's a, a, a really kind of understandable knee-jerk response. And I think, you know, I, it is an interesting time in a, in a child and, and, and therefore family's development. You know, when a kid turns four or five and is kind of emancipated for the first time, I think of it terms of, in terms of like, you know, there's like this leaving of the Garden of Eden. You know, for those first mm-hmm. few years, you're in this wonderful little bubble as a family unit. And then suddenly you're kind of all subjected to a, a, a lot of, judgment and labeling and social norms and you kind of have to undergo this collective evaluation you know I, I, I even if you don't have a child who is overtly different in any way it's strange it happens quickly and it's hard not to be resentful of that and, and when I first read the script I was I was a little judgmental of Alex too <laughs> um, and and then I came to sympathize with her, I think her mama bear instincts, um, and 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 she works through them. But um, I think it came from a place of fear and love. And yeah. I, I love the story because every character is, you know, well intentioned and um, and decent and loving. Um, but but they all are experiencing this awareness. Uh, of their of Jake being a little different in different ways and at different paces, and it's 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 clumsy and messy, um, and and but it does make for really compelling conversation, and and that's what I hope the movie will stimulate you know in audiences when the credits roll, you know, it's just a continuation of that conversation. Yeah. And it, it's not a story that takes place in a community that we would maybe stereotypically associate with people being, you know, biased or prejudiced or whatever. This is, you know, upper middle class, middle class, New York, you know, bohemian kind of situation and outwardly progressive people. And yet we see them when it, when it's something that's so close to home, you know, some of those sort of outwardly expressed values are kind of called into question. I love in the film how carefully you and uh, your character Alex and Jim's character Greg and Octavia Spencer's character Judy, who um, works at the school where Jake is at, you sort of talk around these issues and you want to make sure you're using the right language. But toward the end, and I'm not, I don't think this is a spoiler, you and, and, and Jim have this just beautifully acted and articulated argument this this really kind of almost tear the walls down fight where everything is laid bare mm-hmm. so i'm curious when you're when you're playing you know the, the sort of subtlety of the earlier scenes and then you have to kind of build into a real centerpiece sequence like that uh is there preparation for that were you guys shooting in sequence or is it just kind of like you have to be there on the day whatever it is you're, you're shooting oh we shot that scene that climactic scene towards the end of the shoot. And I don't think that was coincidental. I think the producers had designed it that way, which was um, fortunate for us actors. 
you know, so we'd had time to get comfortable with our characters and each other and, and all that. But yeah, I just love that fight so much. Uh, Daniel Pearl, the writer is particularly gifted at, at crafting those kinds of arguments because they escalate in a way that I just still recognize. I don't know if I'd ever, ever been able to play out a, a fight that, that, that felt that authentic. I think we've all had those fights uh, when it just, this, this ugliness comes kind of rushing forth. And in your desperation, you, you tear down the person you love most in the world. It, it's, Sadly, it's it's um, it's really familiar. <laughs> I think it is it is a relief too after all of as you say all of that carefulness and I don't know mindfulness and political correctness to just get to the kind of base id you know the the raw guttural feelings and and they're not even they're not even speaking honestly, they're speaking cruelly, but, mm-hmm. but, um, but they, but they need to have that, I, I guess, in order to move through it and, and come out the other side. It's a real bruiser of a scene, but it's so well done. And it's, it's, it's directed with a, a, a kind of an intimacy, a delicacy. Uh, I'm curious, uh, or, or delicateness, I should say. Uh, I'm curious, uh, Silas Howard, uh, who, you know, we know from Transparent, he himself is a trans person. I'm, I'm curious, what was it like working with him? How did he help guide you in, into this very particular, this kind of prickly story at this prickly moment? Was, was I would imagine that he, his lived experience was a big help in, in yeah, imparting that to you guys. I, I mean, I guess so. I, I, when I, I guess I was really reassured by the fact that when, when I first talked to Silas about the project, I was probably more damning of Alex than he was, you know, I think, I think he was had a very generous spirit towards all of the characters, even those who, you know, were particularly confused or kind of limited at certain times. And uh, I, I don't know, his, he was very relaxed about everybody, you know, all, all the characters that make me not being so ideal. <laughs> uh, and, and that gave me permission, I think, to embrace her more fully and not like apologize for the mistakes she makes along the way. So, yeah, he just had a kind of openness and permissiveness. And but I think you can only really earn when <laughs> you're, you're, you know, very intimately what, what that might be like to be, you know, the subject yeah. of all that. <laughs> I don't know. Difficulty, confusion. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think that that, that sort of, that graciousness, that generosity really shows in the film. It's a really lovely and soft-spoken thing. And I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, while you've been, busy saving us all from terrorists for the last, you know, near decade. You've done some film work, but it's been intermittent. Obviously, making a television show is a lot of work. Um, is it a big decision to decide, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna go make a kid like Jake? I mean, does the fact that it's shot in New York help? I mean, what, what are your... Do you have a guiding principle when you decide to do something that is outside of the bounds of Homeland? Well, I mean, I had my son just after the second season. 
so the two hiatuses following that were claimed by that experience, right. you know. Right. Um, I had to give birth to him, and then he was still really little, and I had to just kind of generally keep him alive. And then once he became more independent, then I was allowed to to have you know, to do different projects during my downtime, which again is is kind of limited. And also, my husband's an actor, Hugh Dancy, and he was making he was doing a show in Toronto, it's in Hannibal, for the first those first three years of Cyrus's life during my off season, and that that kind of played a factor too in my availability to do different projects. But I did a play, uh, Dry Powder, the public theater here in New York, oh, yeah, right. uh, the year before last. And, and then, and then a kid like Jake appeared and, and that just was kind of a no brainer. And yeah, I think that being in New York was a lovely coincidence, but I would have gone to a more far flung place, I think, to film it. I mean, it's also it was made for very little money. So therefore in very little time, <laughs> again, it was, was helpful given for my schedule, but I don't know. It's not, I would love to say that there's a, there's a, there's a grander scheme at play, but it's, I, I really just take it um, as it comes and, and yeah. And, and things get more complicated when there are, when you start like being responsible <laughs> To, to your family, all these other bodies with other agendas. And now, all of, a sudden, of course, yeah. I'm going to have another one. So it's going to be, you know, that complication will become further multiplied. But, you know, it was it was great. It was it was so nice to, to just deviate for a second from Homeland, which obviously I'm, I, I've had an amazing time doing. I don't begrudge that in any way. But I, we had, as I mentioned before, we had the premiere the other night and all my friends were scolding me afterwards because they said, you told us this was a comedy <laughs> because compared to Homeland, it felt like it, you know, um, right. it, it was so relatively light in its tone. And I'm like, you smile occasionally, but, but yeah. It's there was no electroshock therapy. No, no, but um you know, plenty happens. It's not like it's, it's hardly farcical. Anyway, I, I think my calibration of it was a little off because of, you know, my day job. Well, that's to be, I mean, that's understandable. I mean, it's such an intense show. We had uh, Elizabeth Marvel on the podcast back in the fall to talk about oh, cool. her. She's, she's rad. Yeah, she's, she's incredible. So and yeah. um, and I've loved her storyline. I've really loved, I mean, I've been a, a loyal viewer since the first season of Homeland, but, you know, in these post-Brody years, I really loved the show, how the show's developed and sort of taken on these new narratives. I mean, last season, the most recent season that just ended was very much about Russia and hacking and all that. You're obviously the star of the show. You're also a producer. Have you had any sort of sway in the way that the story goes or, or in what you kind of want to talk about? Or are you just kind of along for the ride in a way the same as us? Um, well, I think we all have arrived at this system, we Homelandians. It, it, it happened pretty organically. Henry Bermel, who was one of the founding fathers of the show, one of the key writers of the first couple seasons, he, he died um, a, uh, a number of years ago now, but his dad was in the CIA and his cousin um, was a mentee of his father's and, and was in the CIA very high-ranking high ranking person there and, and recently retired. And Indian's retirement has put together and kind of curated this week-long spy camp, we call it, but event where we, the producers and the writers, park ourselves in a, like a 
spook club in Georgetown and from, you know, dusk till dawn interview and interrogate all these various characters within the intelligence community and, and politics and journalism. And, and we get this, you know, this incredible insight into what's really pressing and, and, and relevant and, and, and what's, what's going to surface as vital in, you know, a year's time. So we do get to kind of look into this crystal ball and that does help us enormously. So there's that. And, and also Alex Gonza, our showrunner is, I, I don't know. I don't I don't know how he does it. He's so gifted at, at this. And I think they are a little like unnerved by, by how pleasant the storylines can be. And, you know, a lot of it's meticulously researched and, and a lot of it just seems to be kismet, but, but yeah, it's, 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 you know, Alex is an actual surfer in life. That's what he does when he's not writing the show. <laughs> I think that um, there's a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an apt metaphor for what he does creatively. And, and, and we are just kind of surfing current events. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it keeps the show vital and fresh. I mean, it's also, it's very stressful because we have to be super vigilant and like observant about what's happening right now in, in the real world. Yeah. I asked Elizabeth Marvel if, if, if maybe it was at all, I don't know, cathartic to kind of be dealing with this stuff through fiction or if it was made it worse or was it a distraction during all of this or, or does it just kind of heighten the, the reality of, of what's actually happening? It really helps me. I'm really glad for it. That's kind of the biggest gift of the show is that I get to have that outlet, basically. I, I think I would be more frustrated without it. Yeah, no, it, I, I, it'll be, I'll have to go through withdrawal when it finally concludes itself. <laughs> that will happen eventually. I don't know when, but it'll be strange not to have this platform. There had been some, was it a rumor or report that next season was going to be the last, or did I mishear that? That's no, not actually... I, I, I actually don't know. I really don't know. I can't answer yeah. that conclusively. It's not It's not, It's not. not that clear. But yeah, I mean, that, that's what it has seemed like, but I don't think it's definitive. Well, it's probably contingent on whether all of the world's problems are solved by, you know, <laughs> pick-up time for season nine or whatever. Yeah, I hope they are. That would be great. Yeah, that and the last season great. is Carrie just, you know, it's like a rom-com or something, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That would be nice. Oh. I gotta say, though, you know, again, I've just been loving the most recent seasons, and I'm sorry if they were, you know, stressful for anyone, but I'm glad that they were, they, they served a, a good purpose for you. And, no, uh, they were, yeah. they were, they're, they're always, they always feel like too much, but it's always the best kind of too much. Yeah, that that's well put. And then a kid like Jake has been is a nice, um, well, again, like your friend said, not a reprieve exactly, but but something different uh, in a different sort of tone, at least. Yeah. Uh, which is nice. Yeah. Well, Claire, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been really fun to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We've been watching you since the uh, My So-Called Life Day. So uh, exciting. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So now we're going to share the conversation between Sonia Soraya and Joe Pompeo about The Fourth Estate, which is currently airing on Showtime. It's a documentary series with lots of insider media information, uh, which Sonia and Joe will get into. 
Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Little Gold Men. I'm Sonia Soraya, Vanity Fair's television critic, and I want to talk about The Fourth Estate, a four-part docuseries on Showtime, which covers the first year of the Trump administration through the eyes of the New York Times newsroom. It's a really interesting view into the New York Times, but one of the things that's so interesting about it, as I wrote in my review, is that it's kind of lopsided, too, that there are some things about it that are really intimate and then others where you feel like you might be getting some PR gloss. I felt like I needed some help to dig into it. So joining me to discuss it more is Joe Pompeo, senior media correspondent for Vanity Fair's The Hive. Hi, Joe. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me um, for this special edition of Little Gold Men. Tell me a little bit about what you thought of The Fourth Estate. It's not like a documentary that's going to break, didn't like break a lot of new ground. Someone who covers the Times, and it's probably one of the, um, it's probably the news organization company I've covered the most in the past eight years that I've been covering media. So I'm like as much of like an, uh, an insider Kremlinologist as as you can get. So for me, there's an element of, of um, a lot of this is familiar to me. Um, but there was also an element of like, wow, these cameras were there. Like mm-hmm. there, there were so many they happened. They were there for so many like key moments of like of reporting for the past. I mean, just you know, the, when Maggie Haberman gets uh, the phone call um, from Trump, I think it was after the the the, the healthcare. Yeah, there was like I mean that was like something that people were talking about. There was two reporters he called. One was uh, Bob Costa from the Washington Post. The other was Maggie Haberman. It was a big deal. She got the interview, and the cameras were rolling when the call came through. You know, there was just a lot of moments like that. That as someone who has been following a lot of this stuff and covering it, um, it was like really cool, really fun, fun to see. I mean, there's other like there's another really great moment where um, Ken Vogel, he came from Politico, joined the Times uh, within, within the past year. But mm-hmm. he his biggest hit, I think, is he's been there was when he happened to be he's at like a popular Washington Beltway um, steakhouse for lunch and happens to be within earshot of like the Trump attorneys talking like super indiscreetly oh, right. and yeah it was like this amazing yeah. story and he got it and he had he, he tweeted a picture of it and the cameras were there like the moment he came back into the Washington bureau and like went and told his colleagues about you know he dished on this lunch and it was just like a lot of stuff like that we were like wow they really were there i talked to some people from the film who said that some of it really was truly just good luck mm-hmm. by chance but i think these people were also the filmmakers were there i mean someone told me they were in washington like at least several days a week during the taping right. of this maybe like once a week in in right. new york so i thought like as um as an insider like you know you're going to eat this stuff right up. i wonder how people who i mean you don't you know you're 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 a media insider yeah um, sort of. per, yes yeah. but you, but you don't like follow the times really i mean what did you think uh, as someone who is interested in obviously journalism and the times but isn't like you know a student of the uh, criminology of the New York Times. Right, exactly. Yeah. The inner workings. Yeah. It's interesting because I am someone who, you know, works in media. I love the drama of the newsroom, uh, the drama that I very occasionally participate in myself. And I, I've been reading the New York Times for so many years. I mean, for in some ways, I'm like the ideal person to watch this. And it was really exciting. There were some parts of it that were so exciting. Like when Maggie Haberman is sitting there and she's uh, at her desk in the Washington bureau and she looks at her phone and she's like, he's about to call me. And everyone knows exactly what's happening. And there's like this whole drill that occurs. Yeah, that was like a major newsmaking interview, right? Yeah, and- right. Yeah. Because he just called her. And I remember being shocked that he would just call her when I originally read the story, you know. So seeing that was fascinating. And as you say, this this Ken Vogel thing, too, there are so many little parts of 
specifically the the way that the New York Times has covered the Trump administration that are interesting. They're like little pieces of recent history to talk about. But then overall, I was a little surprised at how the docu the docu series, uh, which is by Liz Garbus, is the name of the filmmaker, um, really presents these people as kind of like crusaders of truth and journalism. When I mean, I'm following at least on Twitter the, some of the dialogue that I know that you're much more immersed in about how you know the New York Times has come under some scrutiny, some fire, like some real criticism for the way that they do cover the Trump administration. So it was really interesting to be in those moments and then to sort of feel like I wasn't getting the whole story. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't you didn't think it was quite a puff piece, but obviously the, this is a favorable documentary. I mean, that was my interpretation. What did I mean? Was that how also you saw it as someone who maybe sees a little bit more about this? Because my interpretation was like, wow, this is this is uh, not exactly soft, but enthusiastic. It's glowing. Yeah. And that's like documentaries are like that. They're not quite it's not like, you know, uh, necessarily like traditional, you know, hard, hard reporting or even necessarily like super balanced. But I thought, you know, I thought it was fair. And I thought, you know, a lot of this is well-deserved you know, praise uh, mm-hmm. largely. And mm-hmm. I, I think that um, when you say this, do you mean that like the Times is getting well deserved praise? Yes, in I this, think the right, Times. Yeah. I think you know a lot. Yeah, yeah, they 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 deserve a lot of a lot of credit for what they do, and um, especially in the, in the past year covering Russia and Trump and all that. I think overall this was like a, a glowing. You know, this is a great four and a half hour advertisement for the New York Times, whose core business proposition right now is getting more people to subscribe and you know be engaged with their journalism. I mean, just it was it's it's good for them. This is great. Um, Press to the extent that there is a large population of people who are just you know they're 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 riled up about what's happening in this country and they're on you know they want they're on the side of of the people who are like you know holding power accountable and all that and they're you know and they are going to watch this and they're you're going to be you know rooting for the the New York Times even more. I mean there's also the other side of this is that there's all the New York Times has a problem with certain, you know, segments of the left who, you know, think that there's two, you know, there are two, um, they're, you know, they're playing access game with, with, with the White House or, you mm-hmm. know, they're not, they're not tough enough. They get a lot of, um, or, you know, they, they, they gave too much attention to Hillary's emails, all these sorts mm-hmm. of like typical, like lefty criticisms. I'm sure people mm-hmm. will, you know, and then of course, conservatives will watch this. So of course there's yeah. going to be, you know, for, I think for certain, you know, types of viewers, it'll probably like confirm already what their beliefs are about the times, but this is, you know, like, this is just, this is a good piece of PR for them. There's no question about that. Right. I mean, and I think it's interesting that it is PR because you could sort of see, I think the New York Times comes off well in a more objective piece too, right? Like, I mean, I'm not saying that they've done everything perfectly or done everything the way that like, you know, everyone on the left, for example, would have them. But it's just interesting that they, that the documentary, I feel like it does its best to keep us on the side of really liking the times Mm -hmm. and really seeing them as like our warriors of truth and justice. I mean, I wrote this in the review too, but the theme, the theme music is done by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And it is just so dramatic. It's like action. I kind of love that Trent Reznor is, is there was actually like, I think the the end of the first episode, Mm -hmm. I really thought it was um, like closer by nine inch nails that was like coming (laughs) on. But it was, you know, yeah, the music was, um, you know, it it definitely conveyed this, like the whole thing was dark. There was a darkness to it, but that was more, you know, um, the the, the tension about what's happening in the country and this, this institution Mm -hmm. that's under fire, you know, um, as, you know, as, as, as the fake news media or whatever. And I think that, um, there was like a dramatic element that part of me was like rolling my eyes a little bit. Like every every shot of like, you know, a conversation with reporters and editors was like, you know, when people are like, Whew. 
you know, like, you know, like uh, all wiping the most, sweat, yeah, wiping off sweat brow, off their brows, right. you know, all the most like stressful, dramatic, you know, moments that could happen in a newsroom as possible were like pretty much the what you saw in, in mm-hmm. the newsroom scenes. Um, and I'm sure, you know, to be fair, this is when you see some of these reporters at work, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm not really a real reporter. You know, <laughs> you know it kind of <laughs> makes you, felt, yeah. yeah, you know, <laughs> they, they, but they, what they do is, um, I think there is a lot more, there is a lot more pressure. So some of that too, I think when you, when you said it to Trent Re- Reznor music, maybe that's also right. um, the way it should be. Seen. I mean, the stuff with Maggie Haberman and her kids was really like, to me, it, it was actually moving because, um, so there, so there are repeated, uh, there's kind of a repeated thread throughout, you know, Maggie Haberman, because she's such a well-known name is, is one of the stars of the of the documentary and uh there's a scene where she's crouching on the floor of an empty like fluorescent lit office trying to explain to her son that she knows that she promised that she was going to come home soon but she can't until tomorrow or can't until later and he's afraid of monsters under yeah, her she bed says, she says you're, you're yeah. totally fine uh you can't you can't die in your nightmares right. or something, oh. something like that yeah i mean to her credit i mean to all their credit you see them working like around the clock i mean i, I think that's the culture of the times as you you give it your all because you have that byline um, so there are things about the whole the whole docuseries that feel there's there's a layer of it that is for the general public. There's a viewer, uh, a layer a little deeper that might be for like your average Times reader or Times fan, someone who listens to the daily. Um, and then there's the level of like, you know, the the people who are a little bit more like us who work in media know some people who work at the Times, you have sources at the Times, who you're talking with and trying to understand like how this institution works because they are so influential. Um, and it's really interesting to me that there's just this documentary that's just out there that has a whole level to it that only media people would really get. I mean, to me, that's that's not typical. You know, normally a documentary, you try to unpack those things so that your average reader gets, I mean, your average viewer gets them. But this is uh, deliberately sort of opaque. So, for example, Joe, one of the things that you told me right after I watched it, and I like could not believe that this almost went by without me, is that Arthur Sulzberger Jr., who was at the time the publisher of the of the paper in the Sulzberger family, which is like worth a great deal of money, um, is just in a scene. And he's talking to, it seems that he's talking to Emily Steele. He's not, he's not even talking. This, this is this yeah. is one of the most interesting, or you know, as like from the insider, inside mm-hmm. baseball perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a scene where uh, Jim Rutenberg is like trying to, um, you know, nail down a piece of reporting on one of the Bill O'Reilly stories that um, Emily Steele uh, was working on. So you see. Um, in the newsroom, Jim Rutenberg on the phone, and Emily is like next to him, kind of taking notes. And then they're they're the media editor at the time, Bill Brink, is there, and they're all huddled around. And the fourth person huddled huddled around in that scene <laughs> is Arthur Salzberger Jr. He's just there, the publisher, which I think you know. I was, I was talking to someone who said, you know, Arthur, uh, he really, you know, he walked the newsroom. He was a presence. Someone and, in the Times. Yeah, someone yeah. in the Times was, was yeah. telling me that. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, but there was no like identify. If you're just a viewer, you're not like, oh, there is the um, you know guy whose family has owned the New York Times since 18 controlled the New York Times since 1896 right Right. and he wasn't a character in the documentary his son A.G. Selzberger who is now um, who became you know the publisher succeeded his father's publisher in in January Mm -hmm. he did enter as Mm -hmm. as a character but mostly for a lot of the filming of this it was Arthur Jr. so it it was it was it was very cool to see him like you know, at a mo- again, a moment of key reporting at one of the biggest stories the Times has 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 broken in the past. Um, you know, they they won the Pulitzer for yeah um, their their Me Too coverage, which included yeah. O'Reilly stuff, and the yeah. publisher was there. You know, just 
you know, and this is not, this, no. they're, they're nothing like um, not suggesting that the publishers there influencing. Them. I mean, he's mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not that. It was just it's just that he's engaged, and you think of. You know, if you're a viewer, you think of probably the publisher up in the ivory tower and, you know, things right. get when they have to run things by, it gets, you know, um, you know, sent to the top. And that, you know, kind of is the way it probably happens. But this that's, that, it was interesting to see it just, you know, there there he was during it. Right. But not identified <clears throat> by the camera. So then that yeah. was confusing. So you wouldn't know. Too. Right. You would never know. You don't n- know that that's who that is. But then once you do know, you're sort of like, wait, what's going yeah. on here? And like and, and I felt that I saw this interesting ripple of. It's almost like a gossip layer to it because the other thing that interested me was the uh, interactions between the D.C. Bureau and the main, you know, uh, the HQ in, in New York. And uh, the way that Elizabeth Bummler, who's the uh, Washington bureau chief, the way that she interacts with her editors at uh, in New York. And it's not like nothing. It, it's very rarely no, it's very rare that anyone deviates from the party lines. But I really found myself sort of thinking about the layers of this that weren't being seen. They were just being hinted at, and I just really wanted to know. Well, that was another really interesting moment. Um, you know, so the, the context, there's always, um, you know, historically at the times been kind of a tension between Washington and New York, you know, kind of like sometimes a power struggle. Um, uh, this is very much like a dynamic that's been at the times. And there's one moment in the film where um, the D.C. Bureau has, I think they were covering... It was it was uh, Trump's speech, the first speech to the joint session of Congress yes, or, or, yeah. or whatever. They're, they're kind of like it wasn't the State it was of the February. Union. Yeah, yeah, it was early his first yeah. speech, and um, the DC bureau kind of was wanted to highlight you know his comments about something. And in New York, they kind of wanted to go in a different direction. And and it's interesting because it's immigration, like specifically. Yes. Yeah, Trump, it was immigrant. Yeah, right. it was immigration. So so Elizabeth Miller and the other reporters were were wanted to say, well, you know, Donald Trump is really talking about immigration right now and right. Immig- uh, undocumented immigrants. And New York, kind of the editors kind of called them on a different angle. And Elizabeth right. was like, I mean, she's furious. furious. She's fuming. Yeah. She yeah. T- talks out of school. The cameras yeah. are there filming it. Yeah. She might drop. I don't know if she curses, but she, she says, does. She does. She says, I don't know if we're allowed to say this, but she says, fuck them. They can fire me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that Which was like, you know, it looks just like a, dr- like a uh, dramatic moment for the documentary, but it does actually reflect something about the institution that mm-hmm. is kind of a dynamic that's that's long been at, at, at play there. I do find myself wondering what like the average Showtime subscriber is going to think of this. Like, are they going to be as excited by all these little pieces of it? Are they going to are they going to be excited to hear like Peter Baker's name or Maggie Haberman's name? Because I was like, oh, like, oh, I know who that is. I've well, read their work. The other thing about this documentary that really comes through, I think there was a range of characters that were both kind of like, old, you know, from the old school times um, really came up through mm-hmm. the, the institution. But also it really highlighted like a lot of the new star power of the times. A lot of these people in the film haven't been there that long. Maggie's only been there um, a couple of years. She didn't mm-hmm. even come on as, um, you know, someone they hired to cover Trump. That was a, a beat that she kind of developed there. And it's yeah. how she really, really broke out into like more of a household name or, um, you know, Matt Puzo and Adam Goldman, mm-hmm. um, who they're, they're both, uh, they've worked together for a long time. Um, they used to work at the AP together. And what story did they break in, <clears throat> in the documentary? Well, in the documentary, they're, they're part of the investigative oh, right. team that is pursuing right. Russia. They're, they're both like really well sourced in the, the intelligence community. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're both, you know, pretty, also pretty, pretty new to the times. And then there's people who have been at the times a little longer, but are current, like Mike Schmidt is kind of, you know, he's definitely having a moment mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Emily Steele's in there. Uh, a fair, it, it really captured kind of like I think the new 
crop of talent that is recognizable, more recognizable people, people like you watching this. So I think especially with like Maggie, you know, you know I'm sure my, my parents know who Maggie, who Maggie Haberman is, is right? Know, yeah. At this point. Yeah. Um, so I think that there, there will probably be a certain, you know, star appeal for like people who follow mm-hmm. the news cycle right now, which is most people, mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, when I was watching it, uh, my my boyfriend got very very excited that Michael Barbaro was on. Oh yeah, screen. Barbaro. Yeah, he. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's like the deal. celebrity of, of the times right, right now. Right, it's, um, that soothing voice. Yeah. yeah. Whether or not this docu series does what the Times hopes it does, I I do think that uh, I don't I don't think that the critics of the Times will be appeased by it because if anything, uh, it'll, probably, I, it'll probably confirm their exactly. why they you know are, are pissed off at the New York Times. Because I have to say, like it really shocked me that uh, you know the and and it, it's partly because I just don't know you know I don't know what this how this stuff works. But you know, so there's a there's a scene in the fourth episode where Jeremy Peters um, interviews Steve Bannon and uh, the intimacy they have with each other, the way that Bannon congratulates Jeremy on his new book that's coming out, which is funny. That that was another moment for me because I'm uh, that was my scoop about his book coming out oh, okay, so he's like great. he tells Steve in the car oh they announced my book today yeah so yeah. I was like oh, I know exactly what day that was and right. I you know I you were in the news part cycle. of that rollout you know so, yeah um but no that's a, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that is a really good example of like how of how source management works and it, I think it also as much as People, you know, have this impression of people like Steve Bannon and people in the industry, you know, just hating all of us. And mm-hmm. they they play ball, you know, behind yeah. the scenes. And Steve Bannon, I mean, he and was, you see Bannon play ball. You see Bannon play scene. ball. Yeah. And, yeah. and to his credit, you know, Bannon is fairly transparent about mm-hmm. the extent to which he engages. Um, and he was he, he was known to be a good source for reporters. But you see, yeah, you see Jeremy um, when he goes to the Breitbart embassy, I think it might be a different scene. And he he brings him kombucha. He said, I, I know you're on a health <laughs> kick. And he's like, oh, here, <laughs> right. Here's my team. Uh, Bannon introduces him to his stepmother or something like that. Yeah, you know, because these relationships are, um, you know, the you know when you're when you're a beat reporter uh, yeah. like Jeremy or other people at the Times are, um, you are balancing, you know, dealing with these people, you know, d- day in or day out or at least every week and 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 needing to. Um, you know, there is a certain, you know, tr- uh, level of transaction that goes into like, you know, your relationships with sources and, and you do kind of have to, you know, develop, um, you know, you don't want, you're not, not a friendship or a coziness necessarily, but you have to develop a rapport and a, and a trust. So we're going to leave Sonia and Joe's conversation right there. But if you want to hear the full conversation and it is really fascinating, I recommend it. We're going to release it as its own standalone bonus episode later this week. So keep an eye out on your podcast feed for the rest of their conversation. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you as always for listening. Please find us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review. Tell other people about us. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com. You can find Richard's review of Ocean's 8. You can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for revealing the real reason Mike Hogan is not with us goes to Joanna Robinson. I'm like here for every single heist. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.